The message is entitled, Not Global Warming, But Global Warning. You'll see in a minute why that might make sense to you. Before we begin uh, the study, uh, I just want to tell you how I came about picking uh, the book of Romans to go through. Um, I've been very impacted, and and we're going to be seated for a while before we stand for the reading of the word, but I was very impacted by the events in Paris, Um, and then seeing what happened in Mali, and then with the Russian airliner being downed, and then uh, the, the debate that seems to be raging in social media between Christians as to whether we should let the Syrian refugees in or not. And watching as the body of Christ is devouring itself, each complaining about the other's position. And, and I've gotten to a place where I'm, I'm tired of the body of Christ attacking itself. And, um, and it seems to be hip and in vogue. And it's, it's just lazy is what it is. Uh, you, you, you present yourself to be tough, but you're, you're not accomplishing anything. Any donkey can knock down a barn door, but only a carpenter can build one. And as I, I watched all the events that occurred, I was burdened. Um, I watched the, the president, our president uh, in Turkey addressing um, what had happened in Paris. And I was taken aback um, as I listened to him field questions from reporters. And I, I have um, a transcript, and I wanted to read this to you. Um, and, it, and it ended up, frustrating the president at the end he took three reporters questions and at the end he was visibly i mean visibly frustrated um this this is written uh news organization an openly frustrated president barack obama got testy on monday with reporters at a news conference at the g20 leader summit in antalya turkey who kept asking president obama if he had underestimated the power of the islamic state terrorist group in light of the guerrilla attacks in paris It came to a head after a question from CNN reporter Jim Costa, who asked, I guess the question is, if you'll forgive the language, why can't we take these bastards out? President Obama told Acosta he had just spent the last three questions answering that very question and repeated that he's articulated his administration's strategy against the terrorist group, and he reminded all watching. And finally, with NBC's News' Ron Allen, Allen asked, do you think that given all you've learned about ISIS over the past year or so and given all the criticism about your underestimating them, do you think you really understand this enemy well enough to defeat them and protect our homeland? Obama appeared exasperated with the question, all right, this is another variation on the same question, uh, and I guess let me try it one last time. We've been fully aware of the potential capabilities of them carrying out a terrorist attack. That's precisely why we've been mounting a very aggressive strategy to go after them. And uh, he, he dismissed his, the, his critics uh, who said he underestimated terrorist groups. And then finally, uh, the president said, I still, ISIL's still not the varsity team, President Barack Obama said Sunday. But if Republicans running for president and in Congress continue to respond to attacks by playing off fears, they're, going, they're doing the terrorist work for them. A Republican reaction that's tried to block refugees from entering the country and members of the media whom he blamed for lacking perspective and coverage of the past week, give in to the fear as a terrorist want, help them recruit and let a group of people who've had no hope of actually defeating American forces on the battlefield win anyway. Uh, upending American policy and talking about Christian Muslims' tests for entry that he said, except ISIL's terms of religious war will increase the threat of more attacks. Prejudice and discrimination helps ISIL and undermines our national security, President Obama said. Even as the Obama... 
even as Obama, the group also known as the Islamic State for the Paris attacks and for the first time publicly for taking down a Russian passenger jet in Egypt, President Obama repeatedly spoke about the limitations of the terrorist network that two years ago he referred to as the JV team, a remark that his critics still cite as evidence that he underestimated the threats. And then he said, they're a bunch of killers with good social media, Obama told reporters Sunday. They are dangerous, he said. But he added, our way of life is stronger and we have more to offer in regards to bringing the refugees in. Now, I, I, I don't share that because I want to do a political divide in the room. I, I use that to point out um, a basis as we're going through Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 um, was written in around 53 to 58 AD by the Apostle Paul on his third missionary journey. He was in Corinth. He had time to write this. He was contemplating everything he experienced. Uh, we just have been going through a study in the book of Acts, and the Apostle Paul's back on the scene after having uh, experienced a road to Damascus conversion. Fifteen years he's kind of been in the wilderness, and now he's back on the scene, and he's going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And in Roman, or excuse me, Acts 13, he's ministering to a, the proconsul, the governor of Cyprus. His name is Sergius Paulus, contending for the mind of Sergius Paulus with a, a sorcerer, a false prophet by the name of Bar-Jesus. And, and you see Paul in the political arena contending for the mind of a political leader. And I share that because Paul now writes Romans chapter 1. And, is, and, and, and the book of Romans is probably the most significant book in, 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 in church history. And the reason why I say that is because there was a young Catholic monk who was deeply affected in 1513, in August of 1513. His name was Martin Luther. He was a Catholic monk. He had been reading the scriptures and teaching a seminary class in the book of Psalms and had come across Psalm 31.1 that said, In thy righteousness deliver me, O God. And his burden was he couldn't understand how God's righteousness could do anything but condemn him to hell as righteous punishment for his sins. He, he didn't understand how God could could uh, deliver him in his righteousness. So Luther came across Romans chapter 1, verse 17, and it says, The righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for, uh, by faith as it is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. And the monk went on to say, Night and day I pondered it until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. It absolutely transformed Luther's life. He realized that his life, he wasn't righteous because of what he'd done or didn't do. He was righteous because of what Christ had done. It was revolutionary. Romans chapter 1, verse 17 revolutionized Martin Luther's life. And a lot of you are going, well, so what? Well, it says in, 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 his, in his diary, he says, Therefore I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. And this passage became the gateway for Martin Luther, basically for heaven, and understanding God's mercy and grace and salvation uh, by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. And you say, well, so what? Well, Martin Luther was the one who began what was called the Protestant Reformation. Protestant Reformation took a dead church and caused it to come alive. And even the church that was dead then became alive again. And what was fascinating is we're called Protestants. We're not Catholics, we're Protestants. The word comes from protester. We rebelled against a system that had walked away from, from God. And, and Martin Luther understood that it wasn't by works, it was by grace that we've been saved through faith. It revolutionized the Christian world. This book itself has rev revolution, revolutionized my Christian walk. 
And when we get one of my favorite verses in all the Bibles, Romans 8, 1, and we'll get to that. But this book changed the Western world. You sit in a nation that was inspired by this conversion. The Protestant Reformation and the work ethic that came as an, uh, an object of worship and started to understand the Protestant work ethic and understood the establishment of government and rebellion and establishment that there's a supreme lawgiver and governments are to be in submission to a supreme lawgiver. And then to have all of those ideas travel throughout Western Europe going you know, from, from every area of Western Europe and then crossing the Atlantic to establish a birth certificate that says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. A nation conceived with the submission to a supreme lawgiver that all men are in submission to that, that when any nation or government rebels against the supreme lawgiver, it's the right of the people to rebel and to throw off that government. Unheard of, which has given us a form and a substance of government that we've, we, we, it's never been equaled. A form of government submitted to a supreme lawgiver that it used to be in America, you would put your hand on the Bible and raise your right hand, acknowledging that anything I would do as a legislator would come into submission to a supreme lawgiver. Now, we've removed this Christian ethos from our nation. We're now in an argument in the body of Christ whether we were a Christian nation or not or ever have been. And that's real productive, may I add. And in all this, we've lost the idea that we have lost a culture where I can raise my right hand when I was sworn in as a council member with my hand on nothing and recite the, the thing that the, uh, the, the city clerk told me to recite. And as I'm reciting that, I'm not bound by any supreme lawgiver. I'm not under the authority. They're, this is a nation that no longer recognizes God. I can define whatever she's telling me to repeat with any definition I want because it's relative to me. The words can mean anything I want because I'm not subject to any absolute. And we're now in a state of affairs where we have no absolutes. And this is what frustrated me about the president's press conference. He was hesitant to put troops in country to fight. And I understand that. Having been with Travis Mills, the quad amputee, blown up in Iraq. I get that. I get that the American people don't have a stomach for lengthy engagements militarily. I get that. I get the idea that we have surgical strikes with air machinery. I get that. But what we don't understand is that we have no enemy to fight because ideologically we have dismissed any ability to define an enemy because we have no moral foundation. We can't say they're wrong because we don't know what right and wrong is. It's an ideological war. They get it. And for anyone who calls ISIS or, or uh, you know, Islam or anything like that cowards, they're not cowards. You know, they're, they're blowing themselves up. That's not cowardice action. It's, it may be dark and evil, but it's not cowardly. The cowardice comes when we're unwilling to stand for anything. They stand for what they believe. And they're taking Europe. 
And, and, and this is where we now come to a struggle between form and substance that will be de- de- defined in the scriptures for us. Form and substance. We have a nation, interestingly enough, we have a nation where we have liberty with license. We've experienced more freedom, more liberty. And when we sing our national anthem, we always cheer, land of the, home, home of the free, ah, land of the brave. We have liberty and license. The reason why we have liberty is because man is governed by a supreme lawgiver accountable. But we've removed that from our culture. And now we're in a precip. We're in a dangerous place. Because license is now being defined in the absence of God for whatever I want to do. And now we're calling good evil and evil good. And I share this with you because I was deeply moved by a by a video that I'm going to show you in a moment, and this is all introduction before we get into the text, and a series of writings by a man who started writing a book called The Christian Manifesto in 1981. His name is Francis Schaeffer. And Francis Schaeffer was considered to be a little bit out there. And in his book, The Christian Manifesto, he lists 35 things that are going to be lost in America as far as religious liberty if the tide doesn't change. This was in 81. I counted them. 26 of the 35 are already gone since 1981. And in 1981, Reagan was president of the United States. The economy was increasing. Most Christians were going, ah, it's going to be great. And we just didn't really want to engage or to to, to change our culture, to take these things seriously. And he laid out something that is so profound that occurred in in the early 1930s. It was the higher criticism movement of the seminaries within Germany. Germany, the hotbed of the Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther. And in Germany, this higher criticism was this idea to attack the inerrancy of Scripture, the Bible itself. And the higher criticism was to to remove text and to say it wasn't. And Christianity was based on feeling instead of an absolute. And by attacking the inerrancy of the Scripture, these seminaries of higher learning in Germany moved away from the foundation of the principles of absolutes of God's word in every area of their culture. And what you had from the early 30s was a movement of the churches to become relevant. And the churches fell lock, stock, and barrel in with Hitler and the fascist movement. And the people gave up their liberty for the sake of security And that nation, which was once the hotbed of Christianity, became responsible for over 50 million deaths around the world, including 6 million Jews that were gassed and burned. And all because we remove God from the equation. Well, here we are, and listen to these words written in the early 80s. Something has happened in the last 60 years. The freedom that once was founded on a biblical consensus and a Christian ethos has now become autonomous freedom cut loose from all constraints. Here we have the world spirit of our age, autonomous man setting himself up as God in defiance of the knowledge and the moral and, spirit, and moral and spiritual truth which God has given. Here's the reason why we have a moral breakdown in every area of life. The titanic freedoms which we once enjoyed have been cut loose from their Christian restraints and are becoming a force of destruction leading to chaos. And when this happens, there really are very few alternatives. All morality becomes relative. Whatever's right for you, hey man, I'm glad you're going to church, but that's just not for me. And whatever floats your boat. And there's no absolute, so everything's relative. Are you tracking me? Let's come back. Law becomes arbitrary. Oh, we don't need to vote on abortion. We're just going to pass a law. 
We're going to legislate from the judicial branch, which wasn't the purpose of the government. But nobody knows the Constitution because we've removed any desire to educate ourselves because we didn't realize that this was a system of foundations to submit ourselves to a supreme being. And so laws become arbitrary, executive order. But that's not constitutional. Who cares? That's how I define it. And who are you to tell me I'm wrong? Because there's no absolutes. We don't teach that in school anymore. There's no God. There's no creator. Every man does what seems right in his own eyes. So laws become arbitrary. Society moves towards disintegration. Work with me here. Does that sound familiar? Society moves towards disintegration. In personal life and social life, compassion is swallowed up by self-interest. Has anyone noticed how selfish everyone is nowadays? And you're just stuck on your phone, walking around, bumping into people. When the memory of the Christian consensus, which gave us freedom within the biblical form, is increasingly forgotten, a manipulating authoritarianism will fill the vacuum. We're going, to be, we're going to be foundationless, we're going to be rudderless, and all of a sudden somebody with strength and power is going to come along and say, I'm going to take away some of your liberties just so you're going to have security. And all of us go, as long as we don't get shot, okay. And so gone are all the things we once enjoyed. I remember walking on an airplane, flying somewhere with my 22 rifle. I remember bringing a knife to show and tell in school. Not that we should bring that back, but I'm just telling you, we had... Liberty and license. No one was afraid that I was going to stick anybody. I was governed. My culture was governed by God. There was a conviction. There was a communal conviction of that. That's all gone. And so with this, we're looking for anyone who is going to be an authority to save us from the destruction around us. And then it says, then the words right and left will make very little difference. I'm a right wing, I'm a left wing. It doesn't matter anymore. And the reason why is there are only two roads to the same end or they're actually the same. These are just men and women in politics moving towards where the authority base is and they're pretending to be whatever they need to be so they can get whatever it is they need to have to be an authority over you. An elite authoritarianism as such will gradually force its form on society so that it will not go into chaos and most people will accept it. Just as long as we can have milk. I'm okay. As evangelical Bible-believing Christians, we have not done well in understanding this. The world spirit of our age rolls on and on, claiming to be autonomous and crushing all that we cherish in its path. Sixty years ago, could we have imagined the unborn children would be killed by the millions right here in our own country and our government would fund this atrocity? Or that we would have no freedom of speech when it comes to speaking of God and biblical truth in our public schools? Or that almost every form of sexual perversion would be protected by our government and promoted in the media. Or that marriage, raising children, and family life would be objects of attack. Sadly, we must say that very few Christians have understood the battle that we are in, and very few have taken a strong, courageous stand against the world spirit of this age as it destroys our culture and the Christian ethos that once shaped our country. I share that with you because as we get into Romans chapter 1, Rome had its boot on the neck of every Christian, every human being throughout the known world. They were oppressive. And yet by this book that we're about to read, one of the greatest protest reformations ever on the face of the earth occurred that allows you now to sit here in a nation that has been experiencing up until late the greatest liberty and freedom any government has ever known. Because we understood a supreme lawgiver and we yielded to that. We contended for the minds and the hearts of men. 
But here we are at a place where we've exchanged the truth for a lie. We've removed God, and we've come up with every type of thing we can imagine. And this is the last one, and we'll stand here. I want to show you two videos of the exact same event, exchanging the truth for a lie. You see, when I watched this video, my heart broke because I saw a father who loved his son and he wanted to comfort him. And he told him something that wasn't true just to make him feel better. But it was a lie. And there was no foundation. There was no right to do that. And he did it because he had nothing else to give because no one has ever probably shown him the truth. And he doesn't have a moral foundation in which to direct. He loves his child. And it's what occurred after the Paris bombings, and it's a father and a son talking. I want to show you the first video, which is in its entirety. And then I'm going to show you the next video, which the media wanted to cut and edit to exchange the truth for a lie. Let me show you the first video. Tu comprends ce qui s'est passé? Tu comprends pourquoi ces gens, ils ont fait ça? Oui, parce qu'ils sont très, très, très méchants. Les méchants, c'est pas très gentil, les méchants. Et... Il faut faire vraiment attention parce qu'il faut, il faut changer de maison. Mais non, t'inquiète pas. On n'a pas besoin de changer de maison. C'est la France, notre maison. Mais il y a des méchants, papa. Oui, mais il y a des méchants partout. Il y a des méchants partout. Ils ont les pistolets, ils peuvent nous tirer dessus parce qu'ils sont très, très méchants, papa. C'est pas grave, ils ont des pistolets, nous on a des fleurs. Bah, les fleurs, ça fait rien, c'est pour... C'est pour... C'est pour... Euh... Si, regarde, tu vois, tout le monde pose des fleurs. Oui. C'est pour combattre les pistolets. C'est pour... C'est pour protéger. Voilà. Et les bougies aussi. C'est pour ne pas oublier les gens qui, se, qui sont partis. Hein. C'est pour nous protéger les fleurs et les bougies. Ça va mieux du coup Oui, ça va mieux. Flowers and, and candles aren't going to protect that little boy. That was a lie. He, and he knew it. He's like, Dad, wait, wait a minute. Let, let me see if I got you right on this. And I've shared with you the, the, the challenge of the uh, kindergartners and the Stanford seniors, and they were asked the riddle. What is greater than God, more evil than the devil? The, the rich need it, the poor have it, and if you eat it, you'll die. And the seniors are like, well, let's see. And the kindergartners got it with the first sentence. What's greater than God? Nothing. That little boy gets it. And, and in our wisdom, we've become foolish. And he, he tricks him into thinking that these candles and these flowers are going to protect them. And everybody feels good because it's all about feelings. Certainly not absolutes or truths. And, and the media didn't like that part about the guns, so they had to keep the narrative. Watch USA Today. It is impossible to understand the minds of the terrorists who carried out the Paris attacks. But one little boy is trying. Oui, parce qu'ils sont très, très, très méchants. Les méchants, c'est pas très gentil, les méchants. In an interview on the Canal Plus TV show, Le Petit Journal, he worried about having to move because of the attacks. But his father had all the right answers. We don't need to change our house. It's the France, our house. But there are the méchants, Papa. Yes, but there are the méchants everywhere.
when the boy pointed out that the bad guys had guns. His dad said they had flowers to fight the guns. C'est pour c'est pour protéger. Voilà. Et les bougies aussi. C'est pour ne pas oublier les gens qui se qui sont partis. Hein. C'est pour nous protéger les fleurs et les bougies. Oui. I watched that and I was burdened because you see a generation telling another generation that flowers and candles are going to protect you from an ideological attack. There's going to be another attack. Nothing's changed. And and the ideology and what 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 the enemy is describing, they're committed to. So I share all that with you because what do we do as a nation? We can't define ideologically who we are and what we stand for. And we're fighting an enemy that has ideologically defined what they stand for. Romans chapter 1, I pray will help us navigate through this and for our families. Please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. I'm going to skip Paul's introduction. It was a um, he just uh gives a greeting and then he talks about his desire to visit Rome. And we're going to pick up where he really gets to the meat and potatoes, verse 16. Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That was the verse from Martin Luther. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible, attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they were without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image of um, uh, image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them over to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. I pray, God, encouragement upon all who are present, that you would walk us through this, Lord, and give us a peace that surpasses all understanding, and that, Lord, there would be action points, actuaries, where we could connect to these truths and apply them to our lives and to the community around us. Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, you would touch and move and minister. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The Apostle Paul starts out the letter greeting all the folks that are in Rome. There's more than one church in Rome. They were actually starting to explode in Rome. Rome, Rome was the epicenter of power and authority. It's an authoritarian government. And many of the people in Rome were in Caesar's household, serving in Caesar's household. And they were, they were making inroads into every nook and cranny of Rome. Paul writes this letter, and it's delivered by a sweet lady by the name of Phoebe that we'll hear more about later in chapter 16. And Phoebe um, carried this letter from Corinth to Rome for the, the, the churches there. And then Paul talked about how he wanted to come to them, but he couldn't make it. And so what he does is he, he writes this letter in, in the absence of his, of his presence. And he begins right out of the chute for, by saying, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. 
Now, these words preceded the Apostle Paul because Paul at this point, and we've been going, as I said, on Wednesday nights through the book of Acts, Paul in Acts 13 is back on the scene. He had been in the wilderness studying the scriptures after his Damascus conversion. And now he's back in in Acts 13, and he's bold. And we're going to see from Acts 13 to the end of the book, he's going to go into every city he can reach. And every city he goes into, one of two things happens, a riot or a revival. And in every city he's beaten, for the most part, he's beaten and left for dead. He spends most of his time in his missionary journey in prisons. And when he shares these words to the church at Rome, they already know what Paul has endured. And when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, they're like, you're right, you aren't. You are a stud. And the apostle Paul says, this is a reason why I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And by the way, gospel is oolongelian, good news that God has come to forgive man. And by faith, you receive that forgiveness of sins and you're, you're cleansed and, and justified. And so Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. There's no other salvation to find in the world. Are you going to find salvation by killing another human being? Are you going to find salvation by appeasing a capricious God? Are you going to find salvation by endless works? How will you find salvation? How do you reconcile yourself to a holy God? And if you can't, then you just remove God from the equation and pretend he never existed and come up with your own fanciful ideas of why you're on this earth. But Paul says that it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and also for the Greek. What he's saying is it began with the Jews because they had all the Messianic Psalms. They understood that a Messiah was coming. And you can see this in in Isaiah 9, unto us a child is born, unto us a child is given. And it goes through all this idea of a Savior coming into the world and he says it came through the Jews, Christ was a Jew, and then it comes to the Gentile world, meaning, meaning the non-Jewish world. And he says, for in it, a righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It's a righteousness not from works to works. It, don't tell me how moral you are because of the good things you do. There's none righteous, no, not one. I, I love sitting with my Mormon friends, and I, I remember one time in Fresno sitting with two elders, and I love these guys. I was sitting with these two elders, and I looked at them, and I go, look, you're selling, me, you're selling me a religion based on works, and I have a religion based on faith. I know that if I died right now, I'd be in heaven, in God's presence. You can't guarantee me one of your three heavens, maybe one, but not the other two higher ones. And, and it's only if I obey the doctrines and covenants and all the things. And, and I, I, you just got a lousy product. And I said, let me help you with something. If, if, if you're right and I'm wrong, I'll end up in the, one of the lower heavens. I'm good with that. If I'm right and you're wrong, you'll be separated from God for all eternity in your sin that you were never able to overcome. And I said, let's be honest. Look at me. Look at me in my eyes. You're just like me. You know the filth in your life. You know the awful things you think and the stuff you've done that you don't want your other elder here to know. I looked at both of them. I said, how are you going to process that? No matter how hard you try, you still screw up. The beauty of, of Orthodox Christianity is that Christ paid the penalty and he forgives you and justifies you just as if I never sinned. You receive that by faith and his righteousness is put on your account. And you, you honor God, not out of obligation, but now out of adoration. It's now a relationship of, of love instead of trying to appease a God that is, that is mean. Which one do you want? We had some fun. 
You see, for in this, a righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith that is written, the just shall live by faith. And God meant that. It's by grace, through faith, you've been saved, not of works. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. You receive it by faith. That separates Christianity from every religion in the world. Every religion in the world is man trying to get to God by doing something. Christianity is God coming to man and paying the penalty for all of our sin. I think that's pretty cool. Which makes God just and a judge, judger. And because he is given a way out, if we refuse it, then we face the judgment if we don't receive the forgiveness. He's just. He's merciful. But he's also a God of judgment. And as a result, you're going to see in verse 18 where the message comes from. It's not global warming, it's global warning. I'm going to talk about something nobody likes to hear, and that's called the wrath of God. It, it, it's uncomfortable in America today. Nobody likes to speak of the wrath of God. But it's fascinating. I don't think we get the wrath of God. I don't think we quite comprehend it. It's, I think it's kind of cool. Some of you are going to think me weird, but check this out. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And here's how they do it. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. Every man's without excuse. We all know God is here. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor language where God's voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and all their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun. He goes on to describe that every man is without excuse. You, saw, you see the sun rise and the sun set and the seasons come and the seasons go. You see the inter- intricacy of the human body and the, the uniqueness of, of every cell. You, you see our solar system where we're held in a delicate balance, 93 million miles from the sun. If we were to move 5% further, we'd burn to death. 5% further away, we'd freeze to death. We're held in space on nothing. And you look at the intricacies and how your eyes operate and all of the, the receptors and everything. that, And it's just, it, it, it screams of a designer. It screams of a designer. We even look at the, the universe. You, you take this piece of paper, represents the distance between the earth and, and, and the sun, just the thickness of the paper. You see, see how thin that is? You see that? Let's just say that's 93 million miles. To get to the next star, Alpha Centauri, you'd have to stack that paper, each thickness representing 93 million miles, you'd have to stack that 31 feet high to get to the next star, to get to the edge of the Milky Way galaxy, just to the edge of the Milky Way galaxy, stacking paper, each thickness representing 93 million miles, it'd have to be a stack 310 miles high to get to the known end of the known universe, which is expanding. Stacking that paper, the thickness, 93 million miles, you'd have to stack that paper 30 million miles high. And the Bible says God holds all of that in the span of his hand. And you're going to say, I have questions for you, God. (laughs) And he creates you in his image. He gives you the ability to love. He imparts his spirit. He gives you a law to protect you. He's designed and defined it. He's given you free will, and we reject it. And the wrath is described for those that know this and reject it. You don't reject Christianity because of the lack of evidence. You love your sin, and you don't want to submit 
to God. He's immutable. He's not changing. He is, he is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. We are submitted to him. He's the creator. We're the creature. Our founding fathers understood that. And because of that, we're submitted to him and we're governed by him. But we throw off all constraints, so the liberty and the license, we take license to do whatever we want, and our liberties are suppressed. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by things that are made, being understood by the things that are made. The only other time in the scriptures where you find this this word in the Greek is called poema. It's where we get our word poetry. Uh, We find it in Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship, his poema, created in, in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, so God's created man as, as a poetic picture that we would walk in these works of, of, of creativity. He's, he's made us to be creative beings. And, and we, say, we say that, this is the fascinating thing, we remove God from the equation and say he never existed we teach all of our kids, like we saw in the video, that, that we, we are a chaotic, cosmic occurrence. Um, there's no order to the universe. Um, there was an explosion. We don't know who started it. We don't know where matter comes from, but there's no creator. Just Let's just get that out of your head right now. And, and, and as a result of this chaotic explosion, the chaos in the universe, it, billions and billions and billions and billions of years... Uh, you just happen to come along. And not just happen to come along, you happen to come along as people that have in common death, and in common you all are creative, and you make chairs and buildings, and, and you have order, and you, you drive on freeways that are ordered, and you, where'd that come from? We don't know. <laughs> but I mean, it, it, you know, we're designers because we're creating the image of God, and all the universe speaks of a designer, but we reject that. Reject that. Fascinating. I've shared with you the illustration where, where you come along and you see a watch on the ground. You grab your friend and you say, hey, I want it. Somebody lost their watch. No, 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 no. This just happened. It doesn't belong to anyone. Well, somebody made it. No, 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 no. Nobody made that. That just happened. How? Billions and billions. You see, what happened was, it's a beveled glass. The sand after a volcanic, it melted, and then the wind blew and beveled it. And then, uh, interesting is the winds, and then the metal, the metal parts uh, over time, and the intricacies of the network of the, and oh, the leather straps, uh, those, the cows, lightning hit, the cow, the, the bird came along and poked holes, uniquely distant, and it fits perfectly around a human, no designer, just happened. And like the kid, what are you smoking, Dad? How can this be? So we exchange the truth for a lie. We remove God from the equation. And now we're in a state since the early 30s, where prior to the 30s, the number one textbook in America was a New England primer. It was this high, that wide, and that thick. And it was all about the Lord and the education. It created the first great awakening with Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. Went into Jeremiah Lanfear in the second great awakening. Every key epic in American history started with a revival. 
That's where the founding fathers were educated. The Civil War, we lost 650,000 people on a field of battle. They all went through the Great Awakening. D.L. Moody was an ambulance driver in the Civil War. Everybody had an awakening to lift slavery from the warp and the woof of the fabric of our country, to establish a government that, 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 that understood that we are submitted to a, a creator and that rights don't come from man, they come from God. And educating our children. And along came folks that said, no. No, we can't do this anymore. I'm tired of God being involved in everything, and I want to throw off all these constraints, and we first got to reach the young kids. And so it was a concerted effort to affect the schools, a concerted effort to affect, uh, to affect the governments, and Christians backed away because we just didn't want any conflict. We thought that peace, like the Father did, is the absence of conflict. Flowers and candles, kids, it's really good. And because of our unwillingness to engage the culture and just want to be protected in our four walls of our home and our churches, everything's disintegrated around us because we don't contend in the marketplace. And so we came up with what we call pietism, separating the holy from the secular to justify our inactivity and to think ourselves brave. We would speak about the gospel, and we'd speak about salvation, and we'd do all kinds of, of you know, altar calls, but there'd be no transformation of the culture. Calvary Chapels has been doing this for over 60 years, leading people to Christ in a state that has gone from being one of the greatest economies in the world to tanking and being the number one abortion provider of any state in the country and being the author of transgender bathroom bills and no-fault divorce. So you're telling me that we can separate. That's pietism. Pietism is platonic. it's, it's It's words without action. It's fruitless. It's like candles and flowers. God didn't say make converts. He said make disciples. Teaching our kids to engage. And when God says that we are his poema, his workmanship, every one of you is wired and put together for a purpose in culture to contend for the minds of man. And to separate that and say it's just about the gospel, you have lost the supreme deity of who God is, that he is God over everything. And we are his children, his poema, his workmanship, and he has created us unto good works that we, he prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Some of you should be in politics and do that. Some of you should be teachers in the school system. Some of you should be on the school board. Some of you should be engaging in every area possible. Apathy because you're afraid of conflict is not acceptable. And Paul is pointing this out to the church in Rome. He says, we are contending for the minds of men that have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They've rejected the invisible attributes of God that are clearly seen even by little children in Paris. Even as eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. We, we can't even justify our inactivity. We're without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Not in their government, not in their schools, not in their businesses. Nor were they thankful. Here we are at Thanksgiving. I've always wondered what an atheist does at Thanksgiving. You know, I just, I just wanted to thank me. <laughs> Nor were they thankful. They became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, creeping things. Listen, I love trees. 
I'm a council member who sits on a council with four other members that put forward the most restrictive oak tree ordinances in the history of our city. Amen, two of you. But I, I marvel at some of the people that come in to testify. They are in love with trees. Almost like they worship them. They were here long before we were here, and they're going to be here long after we're here, and, and I'm going to step on the Starship Enterprise and go into space. And, and Why are trees valuable? Says who? And why do you contend for them? And, and how do you not consider an unborn child valuable? What, what, what's the disconnect here? We worship the, the, the creature. Therefore, God gave them over to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, to exchange the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason, God gave them over to vile passions. You see, you know what the wrath of God is? The wrath of God is real simple. This, this is a cause and effect. You honor me, you live, you're blessed. You don't, and you want all this instead of me, and you don't want me to govern you. Okay. Try living apart from the one who gave you life. And what ends up happening is we no longer have liberty and license. We have authoritarian governments, authoritarian governments. You look at a horseshoe, you say, well, communism and fascism are different. No, they aren't. They're really close together on, on two opposite ends of the horseshoe. They're just, they're just authoritarian governments with just different concepts. But it's all governed by man, not by God. And up here you have liberty with license in a, in a nation governed by God. Hand on the Bible, right hand up. Submitting to a supreme lawgiver that if any government makes a law or an ordinance to, to circumvent or, or re, you know, remove God's ordinance, it's the right of the people and, they, and it's the... the It's a requirement of the people to throw off that. Let me, let me share with you some more of, I've got four minutes here. Let me share with you some more of Francis Schaeffer. He says, the scriptures make clear that we as a Bible-believing Christians are locked in a battle of cosmic proportion it is a life and death struggle over the minds and souls of men for all eternity, but is equally a life and death struggle over the life on this earth. On one level, this is a spiritual battle which is being fought in the heavenlies. And Paul's letter to the Ephesians presents this classic expression. He writes in Ephesians 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And I would just say to the body of Christ, do we believe that we are engaged in a cosmic battle? And I think we can muster a little bit of a, yeah. Do we really believe that there are powers of this dark world which are rulers that, that rule our age? As uh, John writes in 1 John 5.19, he says, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. If we do not believe these things, we certainly cannot expect to have much success in fighting the battle. Why has the Christian ethos in our culture been squandered? Why do we have so little impact upon the world today? Is it not because we have failed to take the primary battle seriously? And if we have failed to take the battle seriously... 
We have certainly failed to use the weapons our Lord has provided, as the Apostle Paul writes. And this is what he says in Ephesians 6. He says, finally, my brethren, Paul writing, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with the, with the truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. How are we going to put on the belt of truth How are we going to be able to proclaim and contend for the minds of man with truth that we never read or study? I would venture to guess, and not by insult, that the majority of you get the only biblical instruction and the only time the Bible's open is this this day. That can't be so. We're contending for the hearts and the minds of mankind. Your children, your grandchildren, your spouse, your co-workers. How, how can you give them something you don't have? This is who we are. This is what we do. These are the action points to affect our culture. How can we contend in the marketplace? How can we contend in the civic arena? How can we contend anywhere if we don't have the truth? And the idea of the breast, breastplate of righteousness, having shot our feet with the pre- preparation of the gospel of peace, do you know how to sense shared the Lord with somebody. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayers and supplications in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. If we do not use these weapons, we have no hope of winning. And the last one out, turn off the lights. And don't leave anything for your kids or your grandkids. The primary battle is a spiritual battle in the heavenlies, but it is. But this does not mean. Now it's a, it's a, the primary battle is a spiritual battle in the heavenlies, but this does not mean that the battle we are in is otherworldly or outside of human history. Pay attention, young people. It is a real spiritual battle, but it is equally a battle here on earth, in our own country, our own communities, our places of work, and our schools, and even our homes. The spiritual battle has its counterpart in the visible world, in the minds of men and women, and in every area of human culture. In the realm of space and time, the heavenly battle is fought on the stage of human history. If we are to win the battle on the stage of human history, it will take prior commitment to fighting the spiritual battle with the only weapons that will be effective, what we saw in Ephesians 6. It will take a life committed to Christ. Founded on truth. And if you're not studying that truth, you can't be founded on it. Lived in righteousness and grounded in the gospel. Stop doing that which is unpleasing to the Lord. It's time for revival. All weapons listed up to this point are defensive. The only offensive weapon mentioned is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. While the other weapons help to defend us against the attacks of Satan, the Bible is the weapon which enables us to join our Lord on the offensive in defeating the spiritual hosts of wickedness. It must be the Bible is the word of God in everything it teaches, in everything it teaches, in matters of salvation, but just as much where it speaks of science, morality, and yes, politics. 
If the word is compromised in any of these areas as is happening today, we destroy the power of the word and put ourselves in the hands of the enemy. And then finally, it takes a life of prayer. takes a life of prayer. This is the last scripture I want to read to you. Paul writes, he says, let no one, this is 1 Corinthians 3, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. I'm not saying, and neither is Paul, that knowledge and education have no value. Paul is speaking instead of worldly wisdom, which claims to be self-sufficient in itself apart from God. A worldly wisdom that distorts the conception of reality. The reality is there's a God and he rules in the affairs of men. He commands that we submit to him and honor him. And our lives are saturated by his word and by his truth. And that we contend in every vestige of this world for the minds of men and the hearts of men. We can't deny that. There's no apathy This book transformed the world as we know it. And to separate it with pietism is not acceptable. You know, I I leave you with this. This is a cosmic battle. And we have no foundation anymore but we are a lot better off than the church in Rome was. And in this room, there's a a Martin or a Martina Luther. And each of you is the poetry of God, his workmanship. And there's actuary points that we need to connect to. You need to be in a Bible study. Don't, Don't dismiss that anymore. Don't do that anymore. There's no time left. Get in a Bible study. Covenant with a, with a fellowship. If it's not this one, then find one. And give faithfully. Participate in the community in, in, in areas that are going to touch the community. Quit tearing apart the body of Christ. It's his bride. Fall in love with his word. I, I want to see this happen in our lifetime. And I think that as we go through the book of Romans, it'll affect us profoundly. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for your word. And I thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to educate us and prepare us for the days that lie ahead. And Lord, you haven't given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. This isn't overwhelming. What's overwhelming is to do nothing. What's profound is to realize If God is for me, no one and nothing can be against me. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Your word is Lord over all and all creation and has the right to speak into every area of human existence. And so God, please protect us as a people. Help us, Lord. Give us wisdom in these difficult times for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.